1068 in your pew Bibles, Isaiah 6. Let us pray. Lord, again, you welcome us into the warmth of your presence on this brisk and cold winter morning. Thank you. We ask you to be with your servant, Dr. Herbst, as he brings your word and with us who receive it. Use us, Lord, as you need us. Enable us to do the work you have prepared for us to do. Bless this worship to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 1068, Isaiah 6. Isaiah's Commission. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And, and though a tenth remains in the land, I will, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be there in the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. I um, want to thank you for the privilege of being here today. As was m mentioned, um, a lot of my life was done in Hamilton, just up here on the m mountain, and so it kind of feels like being home today. So thank you for the privilege of sharing God's Word today. You know, it's an absolutely wonderful thing to be a follower of Jesus Christ. To recognize that you are loved, that you are known by God himself, that his grace has found you, and that you and I are embraced and taken into the circle of divine love in ways that should thrill us and make us want to dance. And yet, the gift of God's grace and God's love was never meant to just be something for us to revel in or a place of privilege or, or status. 
No, no, God's electing love and particular grace is always an invitation, a call, actually, to join God in what he is doing in the world. In fact, our entire Christian life should be a response to a personal loving encounter with God himself. We are blessed to be a blessing. So, yes, it is a wonderful thing to belong to Christ. But there's also a sense in which it is an unsettling thing. Unsettling, and I would even say dangerous, because it presupposes that our response is necessarily an answer to the call of the God who made the universe. The God who holds the reins of history in his hands. The God who who takes over our lives in ways we might not have expected and would probably not always anticipate. This is powerfully evident in the life of the prophet Isaiah. Unlike other biblical accounts of prophetic vocation, Isaiah does not begin his prophetic ministry by establishing his credentials in chapter 1. Credentials as a bona fide prophet. Instead, he inserts his calling six chapters later. Now, it could be that he needed to be reminded of the commission himself because his message was not always popular and either he or the people were were wondering if he was the real deal or not. Or it could be that he was spending time in a type of contemplative prayer that is part of the Jewish prophetic uh, way of life. But suddenly he finds himself in what Celtic Christians have often called a thin, sacred space. It's a place where heaven and earth suddenly come together, a place where you're deeply conscious of the presence of God in the here and now. It is an experience so electrifying that you can never forget it. And for Isaiah, it happened the year that King Uzziah died. And it's interesting because by setting the context in this way, Isaiah's profound religious experience is immediately and intentionally inserted into real world history, not just in the column, the religious column of the Jerusalem Post. However, what's more is that with Isaiah, there's another dimension that intensifies the experience. Because you see, it's not just any king who is the historical reference point for Isaiah's call, but it's King Uzziah. And of all Judah's kings, Uzziah was only second in extravagant splendor to King Solomon. He was recognized for his military prowess, for his innovation, his power and skill. He was at the top of his game. So much so that he thought that as king, he had the right to barge into the temple and make a sacrifice. After all, he must have had Yahweh's power, or favor, he thought, because he clearly had his blessing. And despite warnings that this was not his privilege, this was not his place, he boldly insisted that rules were for other people, not for him. 
And in a moment of terrible pride, he dared to enter the place that only the priest was permitted to enter. No one could stop him except God. And stop him he did. God struck him down that very second with the disease of leprosy, a slow and agonizing death that isolated him from God and from the people, as you can read in 2 Chronicles 26. And no doubt, as a professional religious person, this was deeply burned into Isaiah's subconscious. He was acutely aware that while God is good, he's not always safe, as C.S. Lewis fans will remember. And now, Isaiah, through this contemplative prayer, is, is brought not simply into the earthly temple, but into the very throne room of God himself, and he sees God. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, lifted up. And the hem of his robes filled the temple. There were air angels, seraphs, around the throne serving God. There's billowing smoke everywhere. Isaiah finds himself face to face with Almighty God. Wow, what an opportunity. A private audience with God. Just imagine I mean, forget the genie in the bottle or open sesame to a secret door to some hidden thing. No, no, this is the real experience. And now's his chance. What can I ask for? Politely, of course. Gimme, gimme. Or please bless so-and-so. Or, or maybe a few help this person or that. But, but no. Isaiah silent before God. Now, there certainly is a place for intercessory prayer, but in a world filled with so much noise and talk, even religious talk, you and I desperately need to make room for contemplation as we discern God's will for our lives. We need to intentionally cultivate silence so that we can listen. Listening prayer, not asking prayer. And Isaiah is silenced before God. He looks, he observes, and he listens. And one seraph shouts to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the entire framework around the throne room trembles. Did you notice that Isaiah never really describes God, just everything around him? All he can say is, I, I saw God, and, and then he goes and he says, and, and the hem of his robe filled the temple, but he says nothing about what God looks like. He gives no hint as to what God is like when he sees him. No, no, what he sees transcends knowledge, and there's smoke everywhere. Isaiah can see. Isaiah can smell, and it's a vision that completely engulfs him. He's overwhelmed by it, and as he tries to take it in, he's unhinged. He's, he's disintegrated. He's, he's terrified. He's scared. 
And when he finally finds his voice again and manages to string a few syllables together with a measure of coherence, all he can say is, oh no, oh no, woe, woe to me, I, I'm undone, I'm unraveling, I'm coming apart, I'm lost. From a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, unclean. What were lepers supposed to shout as people came close? Unclean, unclean, go away, go away. What did King Uzziah shout as he was led away from the temple? Unclean, unclean. And so Uzziah's temple experience frames Isaiah's response to his vision from God. It is in the presence of a holy God that Isaiah sees his true self and goes through a major deconstruction of who he is. And he becomes self-aware as never before. And all he can say is, unclean, go away. It's what Peter said when he was on the boat with Jesus and sees a glimpse of Jesus' majesty and divine power, he says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. And you know, there's a key lesson to be learned here. And that is, before God can do something with you, and before you can do something for God, God needs to do something in you. It's a painful experience. It's a difficult place to be in, but it's absolutely necessary. This can be quite perplexing, and I often discuss this with um, interns as they begin to work. But you know, you, you've, you've said yes to God. You've given so much up to follow God in obedience. And I mean, think about it. So many people in the world are just out for themselves, just climbing this, this ladder of success. But no, no, you want to serve God. And it could be that it's in the church. It could be in the community. It could be that you've accepted the voice of the congregation as a call of God to serve as elder, as deacon, or you've agreed to teach Sunday school or to volunteer in one of the ministries of, of the church. Or it could be that you've, you've joined to, to help others serve the homeless downtown and you want to do this with passion and with delight and with all of your heart and, and you're eager to begin, you're excited. And suddenly, bam, something happens. And muck from your past oozes into your pr present life experience. Skeletons that you thought were buried long ago start rattling away in the closet. Or the blazing light of God's perfect holiness shines that spotlight on that ugly dark sin that you thought was forgotten but was just lurking below the surface. And it doesn't make any sense, you say, but it does. Before God can do something with you, before you can do something for God, God needs to do something in you.
God is stripping away the false self. God is deconstructing any romantic ideas about self-importance or about us saving the world. Isaiah might have had a special role in the king's courts. He might have been gifted as, with amazing eloquence as, as a prophet. He might have had an, an important place within society. He might even have been recognized as a holy man by the people. But as he comes into the presence of the enthroned holy God whose glory fills the heavens and the earth and before whom the seraphs hide their faces, Isaiah comes face to face with his true self. And he's filled with a sense of utter unworthiness, sinfulness, shame, and guilt, and he's scared. If Uzziah is struck with leprosy for entering the temple in Jerusalem, what might happen to Isaiah as he enters the very presence of God whose glory fills the cosmos? Well, it's just then that a seraph flies at God's command and takes a hot coal from the altar with a pair of tongs, and he sears Isaiah's lips. Now that this has touched your lips, now that you have confessed you were unclean, lips that were identified as, as part of a people with unclean lips, now your guilt is removed. Now your sin is wiped away. Isaiah's honest confession is met with a sign and word of grace from the altar. Isaiah experiences the searing, healing, purifying power that flows from God who accepts the gifts on the altar. You know, there's something profoundly pastoral and encouraging here. God meets Isaiah precisely where Isaiah felt his deepest shame and sin. I'm a man of unclean lips, and the seraph takes the coal and sears those unclean lips so that his guilt is removed and his sin is wiped out. Isn't it true that we're often ashamed of our sin and brokenness, and we want to hide it from God because we think somehow that God couldn't possibly love us as we are? We try to hide our wounds, and yet in those key moments where we're drawn into that thin, sacred space, and we come close to God, and God comes close to us, exactly to that part of our lives where we are most disappointed in ourselves. He comes exactly to where we are deeply ashamed, ashamed because we should have known better, disappointed because we are fully aware that we're not what we should be, or we're not even by grace what we could be. And we're frustrated because we've said sorry so many times, we've tried our best, and yet we've slid into the same sinful patterns again. And we can't imagine that God could possibly like us, or that He would want to meet us there in the place of our shame. And yet, and yet he does. As Paul explains, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And it's Isaiah who will say later in his writings, he, the Messiah, was despised. 
There was nothing attractive about him that we should look at him. He was rejected. Someone that you would want to cover your face from instead of looking at him. He was crushed for that which fills us with shame. And yet, by his wounds, we are healed. We are made whole. The amazing truth is that our brokenness is precisely the place where the broken Christ meets us. And our wounds and his wound becomes one and the same, and we are healed. What a liberating experience. What transformation and hope. But you know, that crucial liberating experience, nevertheless, is also something painful as we come to understand that sin has a price tag, even when someone else pays for it, and we are set free. And if you've ever had a bruised lip or, or bumped your lip or even burned your lip on, on, on hot coffee or tea, you'll know how painful it can be. Impure lips are purified, but they're tender now. There's no cheap grace. And then, immediately afterwards, after seeing God in all of His holiness, after the confrontation of His false self, after the searing, healing touch with a coal from the altar, after the experience of purification and being washed, cleansed, then, and only then, he says, I heard the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord. Yahweh speaks, and he asks, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah now has the courage to say, here I am, send me. Here I am at your service, ready to do your will. Here I am, the real me, not some optimistic, romantic idea about me. Here I am, the real me, not some pessimistic, self-loathing idea about me. No, no, here I am, delighting deeply in your gift of grace. Here I am, send me. And Yahweh says, go and say, be my spokesperson, be my mouth, use your lips to speak on my behalf, be my representative. Do you know, God still needs witnesses today, people who speak on His behalf. So as we conclude, there's still one more aspect I'd like to mention. Because a, a life of being sent, a life of telling the truth in a world of fake news and lies and dehumanizing ideologies, the kind of truth-telling life that we so desperately need in our days will not be welcomed with open arms. As Isaiah goes on to tell us, people won't necessarily like what we have to say and it will be rejected. And so, and so a life of truth-telling can only be sustained by God through the life-giving worship that's celebrated week after week by the gathered people of God, where contemplation and silence and listening and prayer and singing are vitally important, where there is the gathering of us as the baptized community of God's people, 
And it's surely significant that Isaiah's vision continues to inspire the worship of the church through our hymns and songs. And it was delightful to, to sing a Spanish tune today of this uh, passage. But I think it's true also that every time as church you gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you enter into this sacred thin space where heaven and earth come together again. And when you move from the ministry of the word to the ministry of the table, the celebrant brings us back to the throne room of Isaiah's vision, and he says, and so with angels and archangels and all the voices of heaven, we join our voices as forever we say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. And as the last note of, those song, of that song fades away, we drop to our knees in the presence of the holy God and worship. But we do not writhe on the ground in self-loathing. No, no, we are on our way to the table where the exalted Christ meets us. And at that table, we are not seal, seared by a hot coal, but we are given the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And we are invited to drink the blood of Christ, the cup of salvation, bread and wine, symbols and seals of the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord, assuring us of guilt removed, of sins washed away by the one who loves us with that extravagant, over-the-top, indescribable love. And so it is love, love. Love, just as much as a vision of the glory of God that becomes the driving force for who we are and for what we do because we know to whom we belong. And so that every week as we come to the end of this service and we are commissioned to go and love and serve the world, we can joyfully respond, here I am. Here we are. Send us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy upon us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy upon us. Jesus, redeemer of the world, grant us your peace so that we, deeply conscious both of your glory and your surprising, extravagant love, may wholly, wholeheartedly respond, here we are, send us. Amen.